0: Part of the Balan in the culture here is in the mysticism is being able to reallocate energy on people. So what is considered as if it's negative energy, it's what is black magic, right? You know, it's hard for people to be convinced about this whole thing. He comes from a, you know, Western background. So this is like, oh, come on, this is just whatever. But when he experienced it, he actually had to leave the country. He was like, this is this energy here is too heavy. And he had to leave. He was getting nightmares and like really like dark, dark, dark thoughts. Then it was a physical thing. He got a collapsed lung. then some weird lady would just show up at the house trying, you know, to just try to touch him. It was weird things, man. It starts with just taking that leap.) Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even
1: if it fails, fails, you are going to be proud of. It It doesn't matter how badly you got
0: beaten. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a
1: better person, a better
0: leader, a better business. Go with your
1: (laughs) gut. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Yippee, yippee, yippee. Maybe it was black magic. Maybe it was just the locals pushing back on the first signs of foreign development. Regardless, it's a difficult and complicated thing to start a business when you're a foreigner. In spite of countless roadblocks, Waterbomb stands and Cyan Galino, current CEO of Waterbomb, has pushed his father's legacy forward. Today, Waterbomb has won several awards and is recognized for its dedication to sustainability. But joining the family business doesn't mean success was just handed to Sayan on a silver platter. Sayan's journey to success involves music and nature, boarding schools and party planning, summer jobs and acting gigs. But let's go back to the beginning to when his parents, eager for adventure, left Europe for the mystical island of Bali. How did your parents come to Bali?
0: Well how they physically came is they came by car and they were both in Europe at the time. And so Bali was this, I mean, this was obviously before the internet even, and, and, and information beyond your country was actually hard to get by, but there was this hearsay, there was this gossip about this island out east that was called Islands of the God, this mystical island and word of mouth. He, you know, one person told another person. And so both from totally separate situations, my parents heard about this and they're like well this is the time where you know it it wasn't about hey what's your job where's your nine to five let's rebel a little bit let's be curious let's be adventurers my father eventually hitchhiked his way from europe uh the netherlands and he crossed through and then made it through the middle east and then like a full journey had to cross through turkey you know, got robbed along the way. It's a story within itself and of which I'm writing a book on, by the way. And then at the same time, and this is crazy how it all aligned. My mother leaving her family in France, who are a bunch of artists as well, and rebelling and, you know, getting also in a car, you know, sleeping in the back of a date truck. It was a small island. Everyone knew each other. They met. And then one thing led to another.
1: What do you remember about? your parents, maybe like, did they tell you any stories about what it was like to be here?
0: The common theme or the word that is shared is freedom. Imagine you were accepted for who you were whatever you believed in. And, and just, you were in an ocean with beautiful rice fields, with such a charming culture, with very welcoming locals, and you could do what you want. It was this paradise that you would imagine in your head. And I guess it was like, you know, you could classify it as a, a bit of a hippie era, but I would say it was just more of an exploratory, adventurous era.
1: Were your parents pretty hippie?
0: In terms, yes and no. I mean, what is hippie, right? It was a sense of expressionism and it's a sense of freedom. So maybe hippie wasn't the word, but yeah, they did dress the, like walking around in sarongs and t-shirts, but they weren't, the others that were here, That us so a lot of them that also came from Goa and India, they hadn't, you know. They would walk around with feathers in their hair, leopard print outfits. And my parents were just a little different to that, but shared the same chilled out vibe and persona.
1: And uh, how did you come into the picture?
0: Well, I mean, Bali being a pretty romantic place, uh, the story is I was conceived in a valley called Sayan, which is near Ubud, uh, which only got really famous after Eat, Pray, Love, actually. And, um, yeah, and then they decided to call me Cyan. So good, good place to be made, I guess. <laughs> I can think of other places it could be made that it'd be less attractive of a name, <laughs> like toilet. <laughs> yeah, so that's it. So that I mean, that's I mean, some people would consider that even hippie, but a lot of my friends here—it sounds you know, pretty hippie. <laughs> Cyan, I got friends here. I mean, like you know, where there's Avalon, Raven, Arrow, like yeah. all these kind of like different friends that all—all all of us came from this very abstract
1: school of thought. So you were conceived here, but you weren't born in Bali, right?
0: Yeah. So eventually my mother was summoned back through Telegram, I think at the time, to go back to France when she was six, seven months pregnant in Bali. I guess that, you know, there was the medical system here. There was none. And then there was a little bit of like "Eh, paranoia. How are we going to do it? So anyway, my mother agreed, and then so at the time flying from Bali to Paris, I you know it was Bali, I think Singapore, Singapore, Karachi in Pakistan, Pakistan, then Amsterdam, and then Amsterdam to Paris, and then a, that's a long there was flight. A stopover in Amsterdam. My mom was like very pregnant, and she got onto the plane, and then stopped. They they decided to stop in Amsterdam, visit friends and whatnot, and then she didn't expect me to. Or water to break, I guess, so fast, and then I just ended up being born in Amsterdam.
1: Wow! So, how was Bali? Like, what were some of your first memories in Bali?
0: When I was born, we were living in a bamboo house, uh, no air conditioning, just fan, and it was all open because it's so it's safe, hmm. like you know, nothing. Like no there, locks no, on no the doors. doors and stuff. I mean, there's doors When you sleep, you could. But it was, it was a beautiful, I just remember this house and, and beautiful and you had a whole beach by yourself.
1: What did you do like as a kid? Like were like, you just like running around in the forest? Were you like staying inside? Like what, what did you do to fill your time?
0: A lot of it was ocean, uh, obviously a lot because we're on an island. So I spent a lot of time in the ocean. Uh, I learned how to snorkel at a very long age. So I fell in love with it, but all of my entertainment was nature-based with friends, of course, I had one friend that had a place in in Ubud and it was on kind of on a slope and you dig into the slope and make a mudslide and then just going down or going down rivers on inner tubes of of, of tires and stuff. So everything, all entertainment was nature-based.
1: What were your parents doing that they could live in Bali? Like how were they affording a life in Bali? Were they working? Like how did that work?
0: My father, before going to Bali, and this is just this luck almost. Uh, he was in the reggae business. At that time, you know, reggae as a genre wasn't fully exposed, but then Bob Marley came about and introduced reggae to the West. That allowed him to start his distribution company of moving reggae from Jamaica to the UK, predominantly Holland, which is where the Dutch connection comes from. And uh, then it eventually grew to Germany, et cetera, et cetera, right? So he was working with some guy, a very famous reggae producer called Lee Perry in the early stages, right? And um, he sold out at the right time. Let's just basically put it that way. He struck when the Bob Marley hype train was growing. And then my mother, her parents had a little bit more money, so she could afford that. She went to school of art, so she was drawing, painting, murals, selling her art, and so forth. Whereas my dad was complete opposite, you know, totally self-made. And then, so yeah, they lived in Bali, but also living Bali at the time was
1: cheap. cheap. So he had sold his distribution company. So he had money from that. So he didn't need to work.
0: It's like a sabbatical. You could have taken living here at that time. You could have had like a five-year sabbatical.
1: When you were growing up, were they working on anything? or were they really involved in your life?
0: Well, my f- father, before he got into water bomb, he was into the, so he started thinking, okay, let me start land banking, real estate, right? Real estate, not only in Europe, but he was looking at, you know, buying land in Bali at the time uh, and
1: he did. So that was like his like passion. Could he buy land in Bali? Cause now I know it's like a lease thing, but. At
0: the time it was, so Bali went through a phase where it was easier to buy land. In the early, early stages, then it got super hard where you need a nominee or you need a, a, someone else, a local. And then now it's somewhere in between. So, yeah,
1: I mean, that's what he did. What is your earliest memory of this idea for a water park?
0: Well, very early because he actually started playing, toying with this idea. And it became a you know a conversation at home in the nine, 1987, 1988, I would say. And it all was because we went to Portugal for vacation and he went to a water park and he liked the entertainment value, but he didn't like the aesthetic value and the plastic value that it brought with it. So then it started like marinating, so to speak. I vaguely remember like it just water park, water slides, water park, water slides. It just was there. It was there as a kid. And then eventually it kickstarted in 89 and it, eventually opened in ninety three. So so can you imagine to to do anything of this scale at Bali at that time? There were no forklifts or excavators or anything like that. This was all crazy, you know?
1: That's seven years of of work and development to even open. Yeah. Also
0: find, you know, raise more cash because he wasn't gonna invest on it in himself. And this was done straight out of gut like no business plan, nothing yeah, like... There, just was like no there should be a
1: water park here, right?
0: Yeah, but there was also a lot of pushback because like, Bali, what you're going to do is you're going to do this, you're going to ruin Bali and this and that.
1: People uh, were saying he's going to ruin Bali.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, because at the time, Bali tourism was starting to pick up in the mid 80s, I would say. And so Kuta was your surf, Uluwatu was your surf. It was a surf destination or you go to Ubud for the cultural destination. And they were both like what you'd consider organic, things to do in Bali. Right. And then now all of a sudden you're doing, you're bringing in a, what is considered a theme park concept and, and, and ruining the nature. But what people didn't realize is that, you know, my dad was sensitive to that and he didn't want to cut one bit of tree while building this water slides, choosing the colors of the slides to make sure it blended in with the tree. So it wouldn't be as much as an eyesore. His whole thing is like, it makes people happy then there was the whole jealousy thing a lot of people like what is this and uh, bali at the time was laced with uh jealousy a lot of it amongst other
1: people in the community jealousy in what way what do you mean
0: like wow like just wanting him to fail you know when you kind of are climbing up the ladder and just people don't accept that and so i remember him and it molded me and my you know, viewpoint on trust and, and, and people in general, but growing up in Bali at that point as well, there was like, back to the mysticism. I mean, like, uh, magic is a thing here, you know, it was like, uh, people with uh, witchery and all of that. It was, it's a thing here. It was, it was part of the entertainment.
1: What do you mean? Like, did you experience that? Yes and no. It's, it's hard
0: for people to capture what i'm going to say because a lot of people won't be able to relate to this but yes like uh, part of the balan in the culture here is in the mysticism is being able to reallocate energy on people so what is considered as if it's negative energy it's what is black magic right so having people get crazy thoughts or seeing you know things that is straight out of a horror movie whether it's like a body or whether it's a Chicken on the coconut tree. So that was happening, all at the same time that this park was being built.
1: Like you mean, like black magic, kind of
0: like wanting to pull, take him down. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Did you
1: ever see anything where people? He, he,
0: he did, and con- you know, it's hard for people to be convinced about this whole thing. He, he comes from a you know Western background, so this is like, oh come on, this is just whatever. But when he experienced it, he actually had to leave the country. He was like, "This is this energy here is too heavy," and he had to leave. What happened? You no, know, he, he was getting nightmares and like really like dark, dark, dark thoughts. Then it was a physical thing; he got a collapsed lung. Then some weird lady would just show up at the house trying to touch him. It was weird things, man.
1: Because the local population didn't like what he was doing.
0: And not necessarily that it was just that he was a foreigner that obviously had a bit more wealth than them. And that was part of the way of life here. But they this happens amongst locals all the time. If there's a dispute, it's the it's the magic
1: games. I mean, it seems like he was affected by it.
0: He was. He was affected by it. He had to go see people because he thought he was losing his mind. I mean, it, it's not like he grew up in it. He just came here in his m- mid-20s or whenever it was. And then this got thrown upon him. And he was like, okay, now I kind of believe it. But of course, you know is it the placebo effect? I don't know, but yeah, it was pretty, he was freaked out. Does he believe it to this day? Not obsessively. No. Uh,
1: so when did you first get involved in the water park? Cause I imagine you're initially on the sidelines, just watching it be built, but when did you start actually maybe helping out a bit?
0: High school um, during the holidays I'd come here and my father who came up from zero and a very rough background he did not want me to be that spoiled kid that gets you know the silver spoon and he wanted me to earn it and he wanted me to work during the holidays just like he had to work too but as soon as I would come back on or at school holiday summer holidays he would make me learn every component of the park but never ever ever insisted that I ever work here
1: this was just like hey this is your summer job
0: this is your summer job you are privileged and blessed to get a job and whether you work here or whether you work at somewhere else in the world, I'm going to help you beyond, you know, schools. And so I started off with learning how to clean the toilets. Then I did the work and, you know, as a locker attendant, then eventually I made my way up to like, let's say lifeguards. And each summer was like, it was like a training program.
1: Did you like it at the time?
0: <sighs> like it? That's a tough one. I would rather just go hang out with friends. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's like, it it is a job. And also it's like, you know, working with your dad. He was making a
0: point to be tougher on me than everyone, just because the rest of the staff would treat me like, okay, this is the boss's son. Yeah. So when he wasn't, when my dad wasn't watching, technically I could be a bit more slack But because he pushed it, he said, you know, you are watched. You are representing the family. You have to be the bar. You have to set the standard and stuff. So I had, like, a little bit, honestly, a bit of guilt. So I had to make sure that I, you know, I didn't lose face. So even when he wasn't watching, I felt like, hey, I got to step up a little bit. But deep down inside, man, I'd rather be surfing. I'd rather be doing, like, rebellious things with my friends. You know, that was the era where you obviously started getting into, you know, attracted to to the girls. And here I was like doing stuff that I'd rather not be doing Yeah, for the majority of my summer. He'd gave me like maybe 10 or a week off or something just to go and have fun. But yeah, that only started last year of middle school and then uh, high school.
1: So you said like there was no pressure on you to eventually work here.
0: No, he wanted me to earn it right. And he had a chip on his shoulder. I have a chip on my shoulders to this day about that and so like I did not want to be the boss's son yeah that that was like that is almost traumatic to me just to be labeled that way yeah but anyway yeah so he gave me that freedom and I did explore jobs but at the same time coming here all the time in the beginning it was harder but the more you learned about it the more you would you know generate other ideas the more you start visualizing imagining and the more essentially you fell in love with it Right. And, and I authentically, honestly, was like, wow, this is a big, giant playground for people between the ages of three to like 75. You're seeing happy people. You hear laughter all day. I'm like, wow, wow. You know, and, and, and I really believed in what he was doing and I thought I could embellish it at one point. But I, oh, by the way, before the working era, why he also made me work, I have to jump. I know I have to jump back onto this one is because when the park first opened and I was a lot younger and I'd bring my friends over, we were the worst. We would be stopping in the middle of the slides, breaking all the rules. And then he saw that I was abusing the privilege. And so I felt like as part of like no one's like getting back at me. It's like, okay, now you're working. You're <laughs> you are working you I'd hide in this tube storage areas. I'd come in at night. I was just like abusing the Yeah. <laughs> the you <privilege>. were <laughs> I was being that guy.
1: <laughs> but uh, it seems like he he got that out of you pretty quick. So you were working there during the summers and you said that the education system here ends around like eighth grade. At that
0: time, like the school I was in, which was uh, a Bali Island school or international school, it only went to like the 10th grade. There was no program. There was no like IB or whatever O level programs.
1: So where did you go after?
0: So the closest place and where other friends were is Singapore. Wow. And so we went there. I mean, I could have gone and stayed into the local school, but, you know, to have a multicultural international education and being able to afford that was a blessing. And so my parents wanted to take that route. Right. So went to boarding school in Singapore. I think from an educational point or from an experiential point, changed the course of my life as well. It was, it's, you know, United World College of Southeast Asia, which was, I think, founded by Nelson Mandela and Queen Noor of Jordan. Wow. And so it was a really at the time, and it still is a very progressive school that focuses on giving and not just academics alone, focuses on, you know, the CSR element. And you're mixed with, you know,
1: kids from all over the world, I'm sure. All
0: over the world there it was a melting pot. I stood up a bit being just this barefooted island kind of guy, <laughs> kid. And a lot of them kind came from cities. But you'd have people like, you know, from South America, Europe, you know, regions in Africa, in the Middle East. It was like everyone. And it was a perfect fit.
1: What do you think was most surprising to you about being in this like international school? because I mean, you you had been in international school before in Bali, but was there anything different about being at this place in Singapore?
0: When I went to the international school here in Bali, we were all pretty much grown up in Bali, so we were all sharing similar experiences. Now, going to Singapore, people were coming from all places of the globe, so our growing- up stories were totally different. At the time, you know, Singapore is not known to be like the funnest place in the world. So what was powerful about Singapore and, our, and my friendship in Singapore is that we relied on each other and our bond to keep ourselves entertained. And it, I mean, it was deep. It, it went very deep. I mean, I wasn't like friends with everyone. You never are really in high school. It's just you have your crew. But yeah, like it was a, such a stage in, in life where you move from Oh, not into adulthood, but where you're confused, but you have each other to go through it. And then the importance of like education and that changed a lot for me and the people I met there, whether it's the teachers or the students were very special. So big, big uh, shout out to that place.
1: Do you remember any conversations you had or any moments like specifically that you feel like were pivotal during that time?
0: I had a very uh, strong relationship with my theater arts teacher. And he was also head of what was a course called Theory of Knowledge. And he blew my mind in terms of like looking at things in different ways. He really like gave me that extra boost and expressing myself and being authentic and who you are. It was the conversations I was having with him that really helped me.
1: So did you want to do acting at that time or theater? Yeah,
0: I think he he made me want to do acting, but he gave me like the tough love treatment. He kicked me out of a a play because I came late. So my, my father was more of the disciplinarian in the household, but, you know, he was busy running water bomb as well. And then I was a boarding student. So this drama teacher also helped me with that element of life, too. And I did want to. At, at that point, because I felt pretty confident on stage, I felt expressive on stage. I actually did think I was going to go to Hollywood at one point. <laughs>
1: yeah. Really? What did you want to act in?
0: I don't know, because I was like lead roles in complicated theater performances in, in Singapore, like Dangerous Liaisons, and which was, you know, Cruel Intentions at the time was a movie and adaptation of it. And I won the drama senior drama prizes and I was getting props for it. This is at an international
1: school too. So it's like, it's competitive there.
0: It was very competitive. And I was like, wow, maybe I can do this. And then, so it was there and I was a little confused going into college, whether I wanted to take the acting route or not.
1: Why are you unsure?
0: Because I, I also am, I I like the creativity of, of development, of, of building, of imagining, of hospitality, of like, imagine if we could do this that and that and acting was just totally different you know it's a totally different thing totally different world from the world you grew up in. exactly so but it was at the time as well you know the the high school time and the acting time so it's like at the time my parents were getting divorced how did Um, you find out about that uh well my mother moved to singapore i was a boarding school for a year and then she's like i'm gonna come to singapore to live with you for a bit
1: and do you remember what did you say
0: At that point, you know, I I viewed it a little differently, maybe because of the construct of how I was growing up, but I got it at a young age. These things happen. And
1: Did you think that was going to happen? Did you think, like, they were going to get divorced uh, at any time? No, it
0: caught me off guard. Yeah. But from when I left to go to school in Singapore to, like, my first year in Singapore, I grew mentally uh, quite a lot. And I accepted it as long as they were happy. I mean, uh, yeah, of course, there's going to be a bit of suffering in the divorce. So I had this view that maybe for the better for the long run. But honestly speaking as well, I was distracted. It was like, if there was a better, there wouldn't be a better time. Like I was just totally distracted. I was like, and friends were, you know, pivotal. I was was more important about like what I was going to do on Friday night, you know, and
1: that, that, that was it. Do you remember any conversations you had with your mom in Singapore? Do you ever ask like, why are you guys getting divorced?
0: My mom was a little bit more closed on that, but she was obviously visibly more affected by it right and she'd aven- I, I i she's she only tells me that you know i thought it was a forever thing with my dad and then there was an incident where yeah it was tough on my dad because my mom was going through some stuff more in the mind uh over the years and i think uh, my dad l-
1: ran out of steam and uh, yeah Like in terms of like depression or?
0: Yeah, they just went on different paths. But I think my mom had more hope that it wouldn't go that way. And then they were, towards the end, I did notice there would be a little bit more uh, tension and argumentation in the house just before I went to boarding school. But I didn't, it didn't click. It didn't register. But now that I think about it, it was happening.
1: I mean, it's like you never think of your parents splitting up. Because it's just like, that's what you've always known until they do.
0: Exactly. And then, I mean, you see it happening. And for one reason or another, it's hard. I'm not going to judge. Of course, in an ideal world, they'll be still together. But at the end of the day, as long as they're happy.
1: So how did your interests in like acting develop as you went to the end of high school?
0: Well, I was, I was confused. So after high school, was looking at colleges abroad you know, everywhere. For first, I was looking in the States, and then I looked in the UK a little bit. And then eventually, I went to Australia. I went to Sydney,
1: University of Sydney. What were you looking for in a college?
0: I guess a combination of thinking about how it's going to affect my career uh, the atmosphere and then the vicinity to Bali.
1: Why did you want to be close to Bali?
0: Oh, because Bali at the time, that was like when it was like it start. it was starting to pop. I mean, like you could go out at night without any IDs. All your friends, you could catch up with the friends you grew up with. It was that free world still. Go surfing in the day. Why wouldn't you want to come to Bali <laughs> at the time? You know. Obviously, I was jaded by that. That was a, my priority. I thought, oh, Sydney five, six hours away by plane, close enough. Time, time difference, close enough. And That's what I wanted to do. And then so I went to Sydney at the University of Sydney, and then like started on an economics course and. The reason I chose that course is because I was like, I felt proud. Like I'm doing an economics course.
1: Yeah. You did it for the status.
0: But at the same time, I was like, I still kind of liked acting. And then there was this institute called the National Institute of Dramatic Arts where Hugh Jackman and a few other people. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go there. And then I did these like Certificate courses. So I was doing both things at once and then doing the, you know, economics. I was like, I'm going to see which one's going to play out better. Right. And then I went even to New York to do some casting for some show, which I obviously didn't get into. So you were like really making a pass
1: towards this, this acting thing.
0: Yeah. But I never let go of the economics thing because I was just, I had that. I, I looked at it as like, okay, if this doesn't work, then I have that. If that doesn't work.
1: Right. So you're kind of balancing these two interests, like the interest that almost being trained for, you were, you were comfortable with and, and good at, and almost like this like legacy. And then this new interest that was budding that you were unsure of, and you kind of weighed these both, like these interests both equally.
0: Exactly. And some people may say I was playing it safe, but I was trying to be wise about the thing, because the one thing I was always worried about On the acting side, was the way of life.
1: Why do you say some people might say you were playing it safe?
0: Because you should, in theory, commit hundred percent to something and put all your heart and soul to it. A lot of people would say, right? But I honestly had a dilemma because I like both. At the time, I was always weary about. In the acting, was the world that comes with it, Um, and I am one that does love my freedom and loves my wild spirit and not being under the microscope, kind of thing. You know, so. Yeah, that was what stood in the way. And then, anyway, I did these a- the, the acting courses and then I, I got into a few roles, nothing major to write home about.
1: What were the roles like? Did you enjoy it?
0: I got even to a role. I got into a movie uh, <laughs> here in, in Indonesia. Uh, I was the uh, foreign, pretty much uh, creepy guy at a nightclub harassing a girl and like borderline raping her. So, yeah, I was like, that was, that That's was one of great the great, great. Role. <laughs> that was my, that was it. I was like, I thought I, I thought I had like a friendly face They uh. typecast me for something else, like the nice guy. But anyway, then there was another other, like, I was an extra for like the, some version of Godzilla that was being aired in Sydney then in a few advertising roles. And so I saw a little bit behind the scenes of, what acting could be um, for me as like a very minor role or as an extra, it was kind of like, I felt like just cattle kind of like, move over there, go over there, run over there, get eaten, pretend to get eaten, get chased, whatever it is, go. And then the, then the, the, the hours and the 2am and like the this and the, that, and then, you know, a bit of like the behavioral element that happens. I don't know. I just felt it a little bit of what I'd witnessed was a bit superficial. Um, and you know, this is just from my pair of eyes, not to say that it is superficial, but that's what I was feeling. And I felt like I I like the art of it. I like the, the creation of it, but it wasn't like my experience of doing theater in high school. Let's say I was, it was a real world shock, right? So slowly, slowly ended up veering away towards that and, uh, veered in the career pathway in terms of, um, business.
1: And where did you go to do that?
0: So it started the economics in Sydney, and then I eventually wasn't very enthusiastic about my course of economics. So then I moved to Perth, where there was a course that was more suited, which is tourism management and entrepreneurship.
1: That feels very in line with taking on the family business. Was that on your mind as you were taking that course?
0: I'm not going to lie. I was there. I was thinking about it. I was like, oh... I would say, hey, if I was doing this and one day I, if I was at Waterbomb. The, the thing is, when I was doing this business course of tourism management, entrepreneurship, and I was learning all the sectors of the business, it was relatable from what I'd actually witnessed in Bali when I was doing my little intern jobs beforehand, right? Which continued, by the way, all up to that point.
1: So you were working every summer at Waterbomb?
0: Almost. Bomb. I wouldn't say every. I had a, like a few... Gap summers, but you know, it got a little bit more complex. I started working back of house, figuring out like the accounting and a finance element of stuff, which I thoroughly did not enjoy. I'm not, (laughs) that's not my thing, but then went into marketing, sales, HR departments, all of it. And then it all was, it all connected to what I was actually doing in college. So it did help.
1: As you were finishing up, what are you thinking that you want to do? Do that? Does it crystallize?
0: At that point it did crystallize. It was water bomb. I didn't want to jump into it right away.
1: Yeah. Did you, did you talk to your dad about that?
0: Yeah, we had conversations about that. Also, my mom. What did she say? She was more, she's all about the heart, man. Follow that. And same with my dad. My dad's all about the passion. And she said, yeah, you know, look, you are going to be in a family business. You're going to work more intensely with your father. It could, you know, your, your personal relationship could become personal slash professional. So she gave me these like oversights that were very wise, so to speak. But I wanted to prove myself outside of the park. I didn't want it to be my only career was the family business. Because I had that chip on my shoulder, I did not want to jump into it right away.
1: So what did you do after college? Where did you go?
0: Went back to Bali for a bit just to settle down, put my stuff. And then I went decided to go to Jakarta, which a lot of people wouldn't really understand because why would you leave this tropical island for uh, Gotham City? First worked at some consultancy firm. And then that was, you know, just it was a project by project basis. So I was applying what I'd learned in college, but there was no real life application to it, right? So I was like, oh, what is my value add? But it was, I was learning more than I was giving at that point. And then uh, two other friends from high school was also in Jakarta, and we started to we started an events company. An events company? Yeah, called like Dance Flow, where is where we'd set up events and you know, nightclubs and villas and houses and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, me being in the music scene, I was also at events. And then, so we would set up the event. One of them would be an MC. I'd be a DJ. My other friend is a DJ. Uh, Two friends are DJs. And then, so we would do the decor of the whole thing, the concept thing. We did everything. It was just the four of us. Right. And then we'd throw all these like different concept parties and approach clubs and so forth and, (laughs) and do that, you know, for a while. I mean, Is that fun? Uh, yeah it was fun it was fun did it make um that much money no I mean I was like I was still like living off you know packet noodles at some point I couldn't late on the rent had to like borrow loot it was not but then at the same time where I was making more money it was for those advertising things so my acting hadn't purely left just then, but I was,
1: you're still doing advertising gigs.
0: Yeah. Advertising or photos shoots or whatever it was I was doing. I was like for the telephone company, a a telecom. And (laughs) so yeah, the modeling slash advertising thing was, yeah, I was getting paid more with that than I was with this event stuff. Really? Yeah. But the event stuff taught me a lot more obviously than posing in front of a camera.
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, you're eating, a experience from the ground up, which I mean, that's kind of what you're doing here at Water Bomb. you're, you're creating experiences for people. Was there a event that you threw like, oh, man, like maybe we're getting the hang of this?
0: The most important thing was the people, like my friends uh, that I did this with, we all came out of this as winners. We learned just as much from our successes and failures doing this tiny little event thing.
1: When did you shut it down? What were those conversations like?
0: I think there was a moment. I don't know when it was. We were just sitting around at the time around a, like a, a coffee place and just sitting around. And we all knew that, first of all, did, did we really want to continue this world yeah it wasn't like yet i'm sure if we put our energy in it it wasn't like a financially feasible thing just knew it fizzled out the the thrill was gone man the thrill was just gone and that's and and it and if funny enough it was gone for all of us at the same time Mm. we loved it we still want to do a throwback party one of these days but it was like no i mean it's, it's past its expiry and that's what it was
1: so then where did you decide to take your efforts to after?
0: Then eventually I came back to Bali.
1: What did it feel like to be back?
0: Great. <laughs> great. Jakarta, I had a great, I'm not, you know, same with Singapore. I had a great times in there, but it had its time limit. And I'm blessed and fortunate to have like, have been able to move and come back home. The moment I got back to Bali, this was not like your regular old, Hey, come out half, half asset, so to speak. No, I'm, I'm going to, if I'm going to, come work here at the family business at Waterbomb, I really, really have to prove myself. So that's what I did. And then three months, one of the agreements was that if I came in late one by one minute that I wouldn't be working here ever.
1: Wow. So the standards for you were very high.
0: Very. I started learning in the operations and i started changing elements the structures of things and and then okay now it's time for him to be operational manager then it's time for him to do this and that and this and then eventually 11 12 years later became ceo
1: wow what were some of the uh most difficult jobs to like learn through as you were going through and like learning how to operate this park
0: people management it's a huge thing. And you, know, you have to be culturally sensitive. You have to learn how to motivate. You, you, you need to learn how to where to draw the line in the sand. It's really push and pull. It's, a, it's, it's psychological warfare, mm. essentially, in this world. And how do you achieve what you want to achieve through your voice, through your, your, uh, you know, your, your messaging? How do you get to that point? And how do you get people on board to that point? and then you'd have to find people that you could trust. And then you would have to like,
1: what do you mean find people that you could trust
0: as, as leaders with you? Because, you know, no man is an Island. You, you, this is a collective and I've preached this point for, for as long as I've been here. Um, and so everyone is important. Everyone is equally important in this business. And then, so yeah, I needed other people to, to, to come with me from a managerial standpoint and, 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 and take the time and, give them my vision and give them my thoughts and then listen to their vision and listen to their thoughts and then hold each other accountable and that was a whole process in itself and it's still going to this day but it's a bit more stabilized now
1: Did you have any big early like mess ups when you were getting things going
0: Oh Oh I've uh, till this day I mess up all the time and so it's always because it's a judgment call sometimes. And, you know, every was day... was one of
1: the times early on where that happened? The
0: pool. Um, one of the kids' pool was like algae looking green. Yeah. Right? And I decided to open the doors of the park... For instance, that day when it was algae green, where I should have just shut the doors and say it was a technical problem yeah. and so forth. Because the reputational damage, you know, people could get sick yeah. and things like that. I don't remember exactly the sequence, but there were so many like things, how I dealt with customers, complaining customers. I took things personally. I was not very good at handling <laughs> complaints. What I prioritize in terms of like what to fix mm. Uh, during the park. Yeah. they just, just every, yeah, I've fallen flat on my face.
1: Do you remember one specifically?
0: No, there's been too many. <laughs> there's been too many. Honestly, there's been too many.
1: When did you feel, and when did your, I guess your dad feel that you were ready to be CEO? See, it didn't
0: come from my dad but because we did, like I said, there's other shareholders and so forth. And I think he did that on purpose. He didn't, you don't have, he didn't have a voice really in terms of my growth in the company. Right. Right. The CEO element came from someone else. I had all of these ideas and they said, okay, finally he's ready.
1: How did that feel for you?
0: Well, exciting. Very exciting. I I felt very confident I could do it because essentially I've been running this company even before when I was EAM or GM, you know, it's, it's, yeah, different scope. You have to do different things. But I, I felt like I was hundred percent confident I could do this.
1: How did you want to grow things? How did you want to change things? Once you were in that role,
0: you know, before being in that role, uh, the frustrating part of it all was is like if I wanted to push an idea, I would have to go through a lot more obstacles.
1: What kind of obstacles?
0: You know, like oh, I wanted to do this, 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 and they're like, no, you can't do that.
1: What's an example?
0: I don't know whether it was getting another slide or mostly on sustainability. Like I wanted to invest in like a, a new uh, pump prototype and stuff like that. And then like, and I said, no, look, there's an ROI to that. You get these pumps. You actually, it's not only saves the, you know, the energy uses, it saves money. And then I just, then I said, a CEO, it's not that I'm going to be reckless, but I'm going to be able to make the decisions I want to make. And if they fail, it's on me, I'll be accountable. But if they succeed, Yes. You know what I mean? And so it was just a little bit more freedom and I felt less constricted.
1: So where did you want to take things?
0: Well, I knew like you got to constantly reinvent to make yourself constantly relevant and we don't in only reinvent to make ourselves relevant and we do it for ourselves because it's stimulating it's like what's next how do can we improve how can we make this thing better how can we look at the user experience where i wanted to go i just wanted to focus on the design element of the park right we already are a very unique water park in a sense that we're a botanical boutique water park but let's look at like Why does water park, why can't it have beautiful architecture in a water park? Why can't we have like certain things that water park doesn't have? Why can't we push and be the most sustainable water park on the planet? You know, not just in Asia or in Bali or in Indonesia or wherever, you know? And so these are the things I could kind of focus on instead of building your regular old staircase or to get to the water slides. I wanted to to have a design uh, tower, you know, like why can't we put it into the arts? Why does water park have to be known to be as like a tacky institution, you know? And so I could go down all of these avenues.
1: You want to redefine what it means to have a water park. Absolutely. So What are you most excited for, for the future of Waterbomb? What are, what are you pushing towards?
0: There are many ways, many routes we can take, right? First, in the next few years, I'm going through a whole new redevelopment in the park. We're going to focus on revamping the whole kids area. Then I'm looking at, you know, diversifying from the water slide park, but still sits under the Waterbomb umbrella. To you know, I'm not going to disclose what we're going to do now, but it's, it's something that highlights nature that something that glorifies nature, I should say, that is sustainable, that has an entertainment value, um, that is water bomb, right? And then we have the opportunity of
1: looking abroad. To start another park.
0: Yeah. So we've had, I've had people contact me from all places around the globe, mm. a few other places of building this type of water park there. So, you know, we have to pick and choose yeah. what makes sense. Yeah. But for now, because I have a a development plan that'll last me until 20, end of 2025, at least I'm going to focus on that.
1: Can you give any insight to what those development plans are or is that under wraps for now?
0: Oh, and like I said, I, I don't know how to slow down. That's the problem. (laughs) Um, first one we just finished on the 1st of August is this whole new section of the park with, uh, you know, four new water slides. Um, in new pools, new, you know, swim up bars, new restaurants, new massage area. That whole section is done. Then phase two is, like I said, it's, it's a whole new, our kids area is tiny at the moment, it only occupies 21% of the total park, which mm. is strange because most, most water parks around the world is kid centric. We're yeah. more adult centric. So our biggest opportunity for growth is the kids sector, which we're going to be focusing on. So we're tripling that not by adding more land, but reallocating current land and making it bigger space for kids um having such a good fun and designing and thinking about wayfinding and the user experience and how to be unique and beautiful and focusing on where the sun is going to shine and the lights and the shadows that are created and the wind flow it's all really cool and then phase three is also on the nearby land is where i'm going to experiment to do something not waterside related but water bomb, which
1: I can't disclose.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then after that, we got to have a new office area and this and that. So I'll be busy.
1: Yeah. So I mean, kind of going through this whole story from working as a kid on all of this to eventually like, like going through every position on your way to CEO to now running this park, like, what do you think you've taken away from this? What do you, what do you think are like the biggest learning lessons what kind of advice would you give? to someone maybe who is thinking about like creating their own business or own venture, like what advice would you give to those people?
0: I know it's said a lot, it's straight up a power to your mind. I've had to go through the, the the battle in my mind of, of the fears of failures and stuff like that. And, and being able to control that, that, that narrative in your mind and believing and seeing your successes is, is a thing, even when you fall and pancake you know, and I know it's been heard before a thousand times and you hear all of these people, these motivational speakers, but for me, it's just being able to close my eyes and completely see what I'm going to create and know that it's going to be all right. Even yeah. though if there's speed bumps along the way, it, it, it's the way it is, you know, and that worst case scenario thinking, yes, I guess it's good to make sure you protect yourself, but more times than law, I like to think of The best case scenario happening. Doesn't mean you have to have your head in the clouds and be oblivious to like all the risks that you could be taking. But I'm I'm very generic here. But it's just what has gotten me through this is not only the chip on my shoulder, but the, the, the power of of my beliefs.
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Ashley Jimenez with support from Jessica Morales, Miley Lipton, Siyu Pan, Kenny Wright, Josie Yeo, Matt Fernandez, and Merritt Hill. Our outreach and research team lead is Desiree Nunez with support from Marissa Granados, Monica Lee. Sarah and Yao To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at FindingFounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.